Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast, starting off by reminding you that there is a place on the internet called wealthformula.com. And that place is jam-packed full of resources for you. It's also for an opportunity for you to get on various lists of mine, including the accredited investor list. If you are an accredited investor and you want to get off the sidelines and potentially start looking at opportunities that you qualify with, join us. Join the Investor Club. Check it out at wealthformula.com. Also, lots of things to download there, including my book, Seven Secrets of Eternal Wealth. You can also download that by simply texting 44222 and in that text box, write Wealth Formula, one word. Again, that's 44222, Wealth Formula, one word. As for today's show, we've had a number of webinars and podcasts lately related to tax mitigation. And unless you're new to Wealth Formula and the Wealth Formula ecosystem, you know that it's not unusual that this is a topic that we talk about. We think about not only how much we're going to make with our investments, but also the tax efficiency and ultimately what we get to keep of those gains. And for those of you uh, in Accredited Investor Club, otherwise known simply as Investor Club, we've talked about the powers of utilizing things like bonus depreciation for passive investors and investing in assets that are tax friendly. Now my friend and CPA, Tom Wilwright, uh, says that the tax code is simply a series of incentives. And uh, those incentives are for investors and small business owners. If the government, for example, wants you to behave a certain way, do certain things, spend your money in certain ways, they can get you to do that through tax incentives. A good example is oil and gas. Investing in oil and gas drilling is extremely tax efficient. And it's also something that the government wants us to do, or at least wanted us to do, uh, because much of the world's oil reserves uh, outside of the U.S. are in countries that generally don't like us very much. So, you know, drilling and making the uh, making our country energy independent has got some significant benefits to national security as well. Therefore, this is an incentive that has uh, made it into the tax code. Now, investing with tax benefits in mind can become kind of addicting, honestly. And for those of you in an investor club who are dealing with 
bonus depreciation issues, et cetera. You know it is. It's like on your mind all the time. You're like, wow, so I'm going to invest and I'm going to, you know, pay less taxes, double, you know, a, a double whammy. And, and it gets pretty exciting. So you want to be careful, though, that when you go down this bonus depreciation and tax efficient investing route, that you don't start letting the tax wag the tail. In other words, tax incentivized investing is valuable, but it's even more valuable when you actually make money in your investments. After all, you aren't going to get taxed on investment losses. So you still have to make sure the investments that you make, uh, you still have to do the same level of due diligence in them. You still have to feel like you're going to make money and it's a good investment to make. So with this new Trump tax code, it's still my opinion that for investors like you and me, bonus depreciation is still the most powerful and useful benefit available to investors um, like us. And uh, effectively, in the real estate, for example, what that allows us to potentially do is to take uh, what used to be uh, accelerated depreciation through cost segregation analysis over five years and now crank it all up into one year and you know write that off against an investment as long as it's passive. So theoretically, um, you know, in these situations, you can make or you can save 70 to, you know, or write off, I should say, 70 all the way up to 100% of your initial investment. Of course, it really depends on the deal structure and all the things that are going to be doing to that property. But anyway, it's extremely powerful. But theoretically, there's a, uh, another potentially uh, law that is from, at least from a tax perspective, is pretty compelling as well. Uh, it involves what are called opportunity zones. And, you know, they're being talked up big time in the real estate podcast world, you know. And so you got to be, again, you got to be real careful because when you get so much hype in, in certain areas, you get charlatans, you get like the, you know, those, those folks out there that you want to try to stay away from like the plague because their whole plan is basically to get you excited about opportunity zones and invest and, you know, not really care about your money. I've talked about this before, you know, people I've had bad experiences with are doing this as we speak right now. And, um, you know, so is it the greatest thing since sliced bread or is it a bunch of hype or is it somewhere in the middle? Well, I finally got someone on the show to talk about them my guest on Wealth Formula podcast today is Mauricio Raul. Now, Mauricio, as you may recall, he's an SEC attorney. He's my SEC attorney. And overall, he's a great guy. And he's going to talk to us. He's going to review the whole world of private uh, placements and investments with us a little bit. And then we're going to get into the nitty gritty and once and for all on this whole opportunity zone thing and, um, and then really figure out whether it is worth it or not. So when we come back, you're not going to want to miss this, Mauricio Raul. Worried about saving too little too late for retirement? The Wealth Accelerator may be exactly what you need. With the help of some of the oldest and most reliable insurance companies in the country, Wealth Accelerator allows you to take most of the upside of any good year in the stock market and use bank loans to magnify those returns significantly. 
And what if the stock market has a bad year? No need to fear. Wealth Accelerator is engineered so you don't participate in the losses of the market, no matter how bad of a year it is. Sounds too good to be true, right? But it's not. It's simply the same financial engineering that the ultra wealthy have been doing for years. Now it's your turn. Check it out for yourself by going to wealthformulabanking.com. Again, that's wealthformulabanking.com. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder this stuff is so profitable and recession resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest on Wealth Formula podcast is Mr. Mauricio Raul. Mauricio is the founder and CEO of Premier Law Group, which is a premier boutique securities law firm. He's a nationally recognized expert on private placements, what we talk about on this show a lot, um, specifically as it relates to accredited investors and the opportunities uh, available to them. He's also become an expert in the area of opportunity zones, which I know many people have a lot of questions about. He's one of the be best SEC attorneys I know. Uh, he's uh, been my attorney uh, and has been recognized as such by the Southern California Lawyers Magazine, where he was previously selected as a Southern California rising star. He's also a very good friend of mine. So, Mauricio, welcome back to Wealth Formula Podcast. Thank you, Bob. Great to be back, and thanks for having me. Yeah, man, it's uh, it's good to see you. And, uh, you know, I know you've uh, had a, a few setbacks physically, but you're looking great, and uh, I'm, I'm glad to see you back in the saddle again. Um I've described you here as an SEC attorney, and uh, you know you were on um, a while ago, right? I think probably a hundred shows ago. And um, yeah, this was before you were famous. This is before you had a, a number one to hit uh, podcast. <laughs> That's right. Before I was famous, when you were doing me a favor by coming on and filling <laughs> in a spot. Um, for those who don't know exactly, and you know what exactly an SEC attorney? What is an SEC attorney, and why would I need one? And uh, you know. Why don't you talk about that a little bit? First? Yeah, that's a great, great question. Um, you know, I'm an SEC attorney, but I specialize in syndication. Um, and the reason the securities laws are involved, even though most of my clients, I think a lot of your investments too are in real estate. A lot of people say, well, why is the SEC involved when I'm buying real estate or raising money to go buy a piece of property if I'm not selling securities? Well, the def definition of a security, according to the SEC, is really broad. So it, it includes the things you, you typically think about, you know, stocks, bonds, mutual funds. Um, it also includes things that you sometimes don't think about, which is TIC agreements and profit sharing agreements and side deals. And I kind of joke, you know, high fives and, and handshakes, uh, because the definition, the way I like to do it, just to kind of keep it plain, is anytime you are taking money from investors where the returns are generated from your efforts, you are dealing with the security. And I don't care what the structure is. Uh, a lot of people try and get around that or think they're getting around that by being crafty and you know, saying, well, let's not make you a member of the LLC. Let's do a profit sharing agreement or something on the side. And that doesn't matter. The structure is irrelevant. What matters is whether you're essentially, if your investors are passive and you're the one doing all the work and you're active, 
then you're dealing with the security and therefore you must comply with both federal and state security laws. So, um, as you know, uh, with my accredited investor group, um, and maybe you can define that a little bit in a second, but so we often do private placements, which people who are not accredited don't get access to. And a lot of people wonder why that is. Can you talk about, again, sort of just as a review what the accredited investor laws are, uh, as they relate to private placements and why are they in there? Why do we have these laws in the first place? Yeah. So an accredited investor at the individual level is any, anybody who has a net worth of over a million dollars, excluding their primary residence. Uh, and the reason for that exclusion is uh, everybody in California uh, several <laughs> years ago was accredited with all the uh, real estate prices going through the roof. So a million bucks uh, excluding your primary residence or you've earned $200,000 a year the last couple of years with a reasonable expectation of earning that amount this year. Uh, either one of those will make you accredited. And if you're looking through an LLC, if you have an LLC, you know, a holding company, or you, you've got a couple partners, then you kind of look, look through the LLC. So if all of the members are accredited of the LLC, then the LLC becomes accredited. If you have one non-accredited member, then the LLC as a whole is also non-accredited. So why, why do we have these laws? I mean, what, what, what's the point? I mean, it just seems a little bit arbitrary and it almost seems to give people, um, you know, a little bit too, uh, you know, it seems unfair because some of the best investments out there are uh, really things that are private placements. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I, I, that's a great question and I, I didn't make the laws, but I mean, the theory behind it is the, the Congress for whether it's true or not, and I'm going to argue that it's not, that they've determined that if you've got a lot of money, then somehow you're sophisticated, you know what's going on. And obviously, we know that in the real world, that couldn't be further from the truth. I mean, there's there's plenty of people I know that build tons of money and are complete idiots, for lack of a better word. And I also know people who don't have that much means, but they're super smart and certainly, uh, certainly capable of uh, evaluating investments. And so, and to, to add to that, actually, you know, the, the accredited investment, the million dollar threshold was, you know, done back in the 80s when a million dollars is actually worth something. Right. So now a million bucks really doesn't even cover that much. But they have talked about changing that. There's been some discussions in Congress about maybe having people take an exam, a test or something that would prove that they are, in fact, uh, um, you know, sophisticated or maybe they can bring in a, a representative, an agent, a financial advisor that can make them accredited. Because I agree, the, the, the fact that you have money or not really doesn't equate to your level of sophistication, which is really what the, the SEC in theory is trying to protect is the unsophisticated investor. So, you know, to that to that uh, point, I mean, in, in our group, uh, you know, with our group, we focus specifically on accredited investors because, um, you know, from a, a risk standpoint, too, it's just, you know, we make a decision that, you know, everything that we're doing has risk in it. And if you're sophisticated, but not accredited, we don't, you know, we don't want to put your money at risk necessarily. But it also creates, there's also sort of this arbitrary line, because as you've talked about, there is something called a sophisticated investor. And, and what the heck is a sophisticated investor and who grants you the privilege of being sophisticated, mm -hmm. right? So there's right. that regulation 506, uh, fi it's a Reg D 506B, which is a lot of what, what we do within Investor Club and private placements, but theoretically allows for participation of the sophisticated investor. So what makes you sophisticated? Who grants you that right to be sophisticated? 
Yeah, so under a 506B, you are entitled to take up to 35 non-accredited investors as long as they're sophisticated. And the definition of sophistication is essentially uh, somebody who has the specific knowledge or expertise such that they can properly evaluate the merits and the risk of the investment, either themselves or through a representative. So again, even if you're technically not sophisticated, you can go hire a financial advisor, for example, and, and together you guys can come in with a sophistication. So that's kind of the technical definition. And it's your job as a syndicator to know your investor enough to, to be able to make that decision and, and know them well enough to make a determination that they are in fact sophisticated. Although in our documentations, we, we, we paper that uh, with uh, warranties and representations that the investors make that they are in fact sophisticated to, to make sure you're covered. Yeah, and just to be clear, the reason we don't deal with that is it just becomes such a tricky thing, in my view, um, to to identify and try to make that judgment. But I mean, some people do, so that's that's uh, that is what it is. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the Jobs Act, right? Um, the Jobs Act made some of these things more accessible to non-accredited investors. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, specifically as it relates to you know some of the uh, crowdfunding reg. Uh, AAA and, and that type of stuff? Yeah, so Jobs Act was, uh, for, for those of you who don't remember or try and uh, black it out, uh, was back in 2012 under the Obama administration. And they, you know, this is right after the recession. And so they were trying to loosen up the rules because under 506B, uh, even though you can accept non-accredited and it's kind of a nice, a nice exemption, you can raise an unlimited amount of money. One of the prohibitions is you cannot advertise and you cannot generally solicit. And so that places a barrier on capital formation. And so Congress wanted to expand that, wanted to get the economy going, wanted more people to invest in, in syndication so they can go out and buy property and stir, you know, and stir the economy. So they came out with this new rule, 506C, which you alluded to, which a lot of people call crowdfunding, which technically isn't true. Uh, you know, I kind of, before I came out, I would talk about crowdfunding with a capital C and a crowdfunding with a little c, but uh, people call it crowdfunding, but essentially it just allows you to advertise and solicit. It kind of opened those doors with the only limitation really that you could only accept accredited investors and you had to take what's called reasonable steps to verify that they were accredited. But that opened up your world and you got to the point now where you, if you wanted to advertise your deal specifically on, on any platform, Facebook ads, your website, uh, you could hire one of these sort of realty mogul companies to, 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 to market the deal for you. Uh, you could do that. And, um, you know, it's interesting. I thought that was going to be a game changer in the sense that it would be used by pretty much everybody because it, it opened up the world. But it turns out uh, for a couple of reasons that I think I think I know what they are. It's certainly not not proven, but it's kind of my gut. But most people still stick to, to the 506B, even though they have the option of advertising. Uh, I think the, the verification process sometimes becomes a, an issue, uh, especially with really high net worth individuals. You know, they're not really keen on, on handing over their financials and all that stuff. So all else being equal, they'll probably want to go with someone that doesn't require that. But it did give you that option to open up the, the world. And I know you, Buck, uh, I think rely pretty much on, on that exemption for your things. But if you wanted to take only accredited, you, a lot of people do 506Bs. And in fact, you know, the big players, the Goldman Sachs of the world, the Merrill Lynch's, when they do their billion dollar funds, they do it typically under 506B because uh, obviously they're dealing with accredited institutions and they, they have a pretty big database and they have uh, pre-existing relationships with all of them. So it's um, interesting for me is what, um, you know, we, we did do some things that, as you know, were a little bit higher risk in the digital currency space and stuff. And those, those were ones that I definitely wanted to do 506Cs in um, because I felt like they were so high risk and I did not want, uh, uh, you know, I didn't want people sort of faking their, um, 
<laughs> you know, telling yeah, me one thing right, and then losing right. all their money. Um, yeah. And so uh, actually we did get audited and, you know, people think that, you know, you, you know, you do all this stuff, you're spending money, you're putting together a private place, but well, no, no one's ever looking. We got audited, right? <laughs> yeah, and, that's, right. Um, that's right. And, and from the SEC, no, no less. That's, from, that's very rare. From the SEC. Now, it's probably because it was related to digital currency. But the good news is we did everything right. We dotted every uh, I, we crossed every T, and we sent them this huge packet of information was what we did. Um, and the good news is they said, okay, you did it right, no change, and carry on. And the bad news is it cost me about $10,000, $15,000 just to do yeah. that. But they can do that, and people don't realize that, yeah, you know, there really is risk here. And so you have to look at not only, you know, um, you have to look at not only the investments, but you have to look at the people around them. And one of the things I think that you have to be careful about is if you have people who are operating who don't seem to be following the rules, you have to wonder about everything else they're doing. I mean, I that's one of the things that I personally personally think about when I'm investing. Yeah, when I, I actually, at some point, I did a, a report uh, for another company, a private client, about sort of what, if you're a private investor, you know, a private, yeah, a private investor, what kind of due diligence or what are the steps you should take to, to kind of do your due diligence on the syndicator? And that was one of them. It's like, you know, are they complying with all the docs? Because if they're cutting corners, and not doing a private placement memorandum and not hiring an attorney and kind of doing it themselves, then, you know, where else are they trying to save a couple bucks and, and, and cut the corner? So that's kind of a red flag to me. And actually, I've gone through this experience where at least twice now, I've had clients who asked me to review documents and I looked through them. And I said, look, this is really woefully, I mean, these are terrible. This is definitely not in compliance, but the good news in, 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 in quotations is that when, if they do an illegal offering, the, the repercussions are they're essentially guaranteeing your investment. So I said, hey, look, worst case scenario, this thing goes south, they're guaranteeing your investment, assuming they have the money, obviously, to pay you. And sure enough, both of those deals, two years later, went south. Uh, and uh, you know, I got a call from them saying, look, how do I get my 100 grand back? And we went through that process. But it, it's, it's definitely one of the red flags if they're not doing, if they don't have all the paperwork uh, properly done. Yeah, and I, I think that's exactly right. I mean, it's really, um, yeah, they can quote unquote guarantee your investment, but chances are there's not going to be any money for you to take. I mean, if you're dealing right. with people who are not, who are not trying to, you know, be somewhat uh, careful about these things. Um, now, I want to switch switch topics. Um, you have become a little bit of an expert on opportunity zones. I mean, where did that come from? How did how did you know this is new? Stuff, relatively yeah. new stuff. How did you get involved with uh, Opportunity Zones and become sort of the, the go-to guy on that? Well, my clients. I mean, my clients, you know, this this thing came out a couple of years ago, at least the initial rules, and there, it's, it's been kind of in the works for a while, and, and it's so exciting that a lot of my clients were calling me and saying, hey, have you heard about this Opportunity Zone thing? Can we do an Opportunity Zone? I'd like to do one. What's your experience? This, that, the other. And so I just realized, and all the chatter in social media, I just knew that this was going to be a huge thing. And so I wanted to get a little bit in front of it so that when, the, you know, when this was ready to go, which literally just happened three or four weeks ago, I don't know what day to say, but I think April 16th is when the sort of the new rules, the, the final rules came out uh, to the point where we're now comfortable moving forward. I just wanted to be in a position that, that I, you know, was ready to go and I knew all this stuff. So I just started studying this quite a bit, attending conferences and, and writing reports on them uh, in order to educate my clients. And because uh, it really is, 
um, at, at the very least, a very interesting yeah. um, investment that somebody should be aware of. And obviously, you've got to make your own decision whether it's for you or not. Yeah. So let's talk about specifically what's the big deal. What is an opportunity zone? Uh, what opportunity? You know, what what does it yeah. present us with that we didn't have before? Yeah. So this is also part of the new tax reform that uh, President Trump came up with a couple of years ago. And an opportunity zone is simply just a geographical area that just really needs economic incentive. They're just these dilapidated um, areas. Think of, you know, Detroit, you know, where, where I remember a few years ago, you could pick up a single family home in Detroit on your credit card. And it still wasn't a good deal because of all the <laughs> all the bad things. So there's all these areas in, in around the United States that just need uh, economic injection that they're just they need help. And so Congress created, along with actually with the the states, with the governors of the states, they they selected there are about nine thousand of them, uh, and every state has one, and every major metropolis actually has one. Even Manhattan, of all places, has a couple of these opportunity zones. Um, and so, again, it's just, you know, it's Congress using the tax code. You know, we, if we remember our good friend Tom Wheelwright always tells us that the tax code is really a series of incentives and it's, it's a way for the government to make you do things and steer you in a certain direction. You know, they want you to create jobs. They want you to buy real estate. They want you to buy oil and gas, which is why you get these tax breaks for doing that. So they want you to invest in these areas that you probably wouldn't invest otherwise. And so they've created these huge and I mean massive tax incentives, which I, let's go through them because they're so exciting, massive tax incentives for you to actually go out there and put your money uh, in, into one of these zones. Right. So let, let, let's talk about those incentives. So let's yeah. specifically. So on the tax side and the way I kind of, you know, these are tax laws and, and so they, they get a little bit overwhelming and confusing. So the way I kind of, in my mind, I like to organize things is like I, I look at the good, the bad and the ugly. That's kind of the way my brain works. And that's how I wrote my reports so and the opportunity zone, the good and bad. The good is obviously the tax break. And there's really four tax benefits. And first of all, you're dealing with capital gains that you currently have uh, that you are, you are receiving. So you've sold something, uh, whether it's a piece of real estate, whether it's stocks, bonds, precious metals, your Ferrari, doesn't matter. That's one of the benefits of it. The source of itself doesn't matter. But now you're sitting with the capital gain that you'd have to pay taxes on. What you can do is almost like a 1031 exchange. You can take that capital gain, invest it in an opportunity zone that has to be through an opportunities opportunity zone fund, but you invest in the opportunity zone and you get four tax benefits. Uh, the first tax benefit is the deferral. So you get to defer the tax. You don't have to pay your tax until December 31st, 2026. So currently it's about seven and a half years. When we started, it was 10 years, but obviously as every month goes by, that, that window shortens. Um, and there's, I, don't, I haven't seen any talk of extended it. So uh, the gain number one is that you get that deferral. The second benefit is if you hold that investment in the opportunity zone for five years, you actually get a 10% discount on your tax. So let's say you, uh, you, know, you have a $200,000 capital gains, you would actually deduct 10%, that's $20,000, and you would only pay the gain on 180 as opposed to the 200. So that's you know, a nice little bonus. The third incentive is if you hold it for a couple more years and hold it for seven years, then you get a 15% capital gains uh, discount. So 5% more, uh, which obviously is, is, is better than 10. 15 is better than 10. And then the final benefit, which really is the main benefit, is that if you hold the investment for 10 years, which I realize is a long time, but if you hold that investment for 10 years, the entire capital gain from that new investment is tax-free. Tax-free, not deferred, not, you know, whatever, tax-free. So if you buy a building in Detroit, Michigan, 
which I haven't checked, but I'm sure there's a couple of uh, opportunity zones there. You buy it for $100,000, then 10 years later, you sell it for $400,000, then that $300,000 capital gain is all yours tax-free. Got it. So uh, you not only do you save the the capital gains from the actual investment, but uh, from your initial investment, but then the capital gains once you exit the fund as well? Yes, correct. Correct. And that's tax free. The, the one, your current one that you're exiting, you only get to defer it for a, a limited amount of time. The, at this point, it's almost seven and a half years and you get a little bit of a discount, but at some point you're going to pay the piper. So in, by December 31st, 2026, that's going to trigger your capital gains and you're going to have to pay your taxes, but it's going to be at a 15% discount. But again, you've been able to defer, you've been able to defer that tax for seven years, which is nice. Again, it's similar to a 1031 exchange. There's, there's good and bad. So let's jump to that real quick. The good, it's better than 1031 exchanges because you don't have to go from property to property, like kind of exchange. You can go from stocks to real estate or precious metals to real estate or anything to real estate. So that's nice. The bad news is, or the negative is with a 1031, in theory, you could defer that uh, eternally, forever, infinitely. But with this one, it only goes till uh, 2026. Interesting. Because I, I, that's actually, that's actually uh, something I just learned because I was under the impression that... Um, you were permanently, you know, that the basis uh, essentially was stepped up at year 10, um, even on the initial gain. No, no. The, yeah, that's that's correct. The technical way they do it is they step up the basis. So he steps up 10%, the basis steps up 10% after five, 15 after seven. And then and at some point you've got to pay the piper, which means you've got to be a little bit careful because uh, if, you, you're, if you're holding on the investment past the seven years by uh, on December 31st, 2026, that tax is going to tri be triggered whether you sell the property or not. Yeah. So you just want to make sure you're aware of that because you're going to get a tax bill the following year when you pay, when you file your taxes in 2027, in April, you're going to have to write a check for that capital gains that you, that right. you, you know, you got seven years ago. So you just got to be aware of that and, and have your liquidity set up. Yeah. Yeah. No. And that, that's where I think things get potentially a little complicated because the devil's in the details. I've been looking at this stuff and I'm at a recent meetup, I, uh, we, we, we saw each other there a couple months ago, Ken McElroy from MC Companies, and, and you know we had Dave Steele out there from Western Wealth Capital. So I was talking to those guys about this type of stuff, and I was kind of surprised that they generally were not terribly interested in this kind of thing. And, it, and when I asked why, I think, you know, I think it was Ken who said he felt like a lot of... Um, the improvements, et cetera, seemed very, ex the required improvements, et cetera, seemed very expensive, um, yes. onerous. Can you talk about some of those obstacles that maybe they're referring to? Yeah, that's one of my quote unquote bad, or probably the, the main bad thing is one of the requirements from the fund is that within 30 months of the investment, you must make what's called substantial improvement to the property. Uh, and that means essentially investing the same amount of money that you pay to buy the property, the, the improvement, you've got to invest that over that 30 to 30, uh, the 30 month period. So for example, and this is only on the improvements so not the land. So let's again, for an easy example, if you buy a, a property for a hundred thousand uh, dollars and you allocate 20% to the land and 80% to the building, then that building costs you $80,000. You must invest an additional $80,000 to substantially improve the property because that's the whole point. The whole point is to you know inject, capital and, and, and get the economy going in these in these uh, areas. So that is definitely one of the negatives. Now, there are there were a couple of positives that came out um, from the new the final rules. And one of them 
is, is if the property has been vacant for a while and for a while it turns out to be five years and surprisingly there's, there's a lot of those in these things or unsurprisingly there's a lot of these in, in these areas, then you don't have to, you don't have to substantially improve if the apartment or whatever has been vacant for five years. Uh, similarly, if you're just buying, obviously if you're just buying land, uh, you know, there's, there's nothing for you to, to improve. And if you're doing a development deal, then that development will obviously count towards the improvement. So it's not like you have to develop the land and then, and then on top of that, put additional capital. But yes, that is definitely one of the quote unquote bad from the good, the bad, the ugly is that you must do the substantial improvement uh, and that may be a turnoff for some. And you alluded to another thing, which I, I'm trying to get my head around. Um, these, the, these guys that I mentioned, you know, Ken, uh, Ken McElroy, MC Companies and Dave Steele from Western Wealth Capital. Those are the guys that I, um, either invest with or work with and invest with. But, um, you know, they don't currently, they don't use uh, fund uh, fund structures, right? They don't, they don't have like a, st- a structure. They typically go after individual um, assets. You know, they might take down a 300 unit building or a 400 unit building somewhere. But in, in these kinds of opportunity zone situations, a fund is, is required. Is that right? Yeah, but it's not, it's not required. Yes, it's required. But the definition of a fund is simply setting up essentially an LLC. In our case, it's real estate that has more than, you know, more than, more than one person. So it's, it's a two person thing. So in theory, you and I, Buck, could get together, create our fund and go buy a piece of property together. It doesn't have to be a syndication. It doesn't have to be uh, a blind, what, what I think of a fund typically is a blind pool where you're raising a bunch of money and then you're going to go out and look for properties. Uh, most of the people that are going to do this are going to first identify the property and then raise them, either raise the money to go buy it or just get together with two or three other people and, and take it down themselves. So it, it's a fund, but it, it's not the, a blind pool thing. That, that like, so it could be up. asset specific. Oh, absolutely. No, absolutely. Got it. It yeah, could absolutely. be just like yeah. one great big building that you take down. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Well, that's interesting. And, yeah, and I think the other, and I don't know if they brought this up, but I think for me, one of the the negatives that you have to really pay attention to is, you know, it's questionable to make an investment purely on, you know, on tax for tax reasons, right? You want to make sure that the investment stands on its merits alone. And in my opinion, what will happen is you're obviously creating artificial demand in these in these areas, and so you're going to be overpaying, right? If something costs $50,000 because of these incentives and the, the artificial demand that's created, you're going to end up paying 60, 70, 80, you know, the price is going to go up. Uh, and so I think at some point it's going to level out at some point you're going to say, well, I don't want to overpay that much for the property. It doesn't really, it doesn't equate to whatever tax benefit I'm getting, but you're certainly making investments in places you ordinarily would not make. And so you just got to be really careful that the investment itself, you know, stands up on its own merits and not hundred uh, percent, you know, rely on the tax breaks, even though they're pretty attractive. When you're, when you're seeing, well, and I, and I agree with that a hundred percent. And I, honestly, it's one of the things that sort of kept me from really kind of getting behind this, um, so far, I'm not, I'm certainly I'm open to it, but, um, you know, I, I have people in the group who are selling practices, doing, you know, getting huge chunks, you know, eight, 10, right. $12 million. And they asked me about opportunity zones. And I, I mean, I, I don't, I don't want to give anybody advice, but if it were me, I, I don't think I would be comfortable with those the, that kind of money going into areas that necessarily are redevelopments. I mean, you talk about Detroit and stuff. Would I want to spend, you know, put eight, 10 million bucks into a project in Detroit? Probably not for me personally. Right. Yeah. Um, and so those are the, those are the things that become very tricky. I mean, this is not, uh, this is an incentive 
but you know, do you do you let the tax uh, you know wag the tail? Is is Tom? Yep. That's yep. that's <laughs> the issue that that I think yeah. that that you've got. Um, another question I have with regard to the funds, though, because I, I'm just curious how you're seeing these things set up because you've got obviously these multiple stages of benefits, and you mentioned the need potentially for liquidity. Are you seeing um, at least the stuff that you're seeing so far? How are they structured in terms of people being able to take out money uh, at given times? Um, and how are you seeing these funds plan to, are they pretty much, you know, 10 year and then we're just selling everything? Um, yeah. And, you know, how, how are you seeing these things happen right now? Yeah, there, there's no, yeah, there's no provision for early withdrawals, at least the ones I've seen. And even if you try and sell, this is kind of one of the, the things that came out and it still looks a little bit vague, but from what we can tell, it looks like if you're, if you actually do have a fund or maybe a portfolio where you're buying multiple properties and you start buying and selling, right? So the fund sells one of the properties and then within the allowable time buys another property, the fund itself, you know, remains an opportunity zone, still remains qualified, but the limited partners do actually get hit with that tax the minute they sell that property. So really there's no way out for them. And at the end of the day, you have to understand that you're getting to a long-term investment that after seven years, you have to, you know, you have to pay the piper. And so you've just got to have good advice and make sure you can see that coming up. Because like you said, if you, if you sold a $12 million practice and would have gotten hit with, you know, I'm just making this up, but a, a million dollar tax bill and you defer that. And then suddenly seven years from now, you've got to pay that million dollars. You better have liquidity. Um, and you want to make sure that you've uh, structured your affairs such that you have that money either have the money or you can liquidate that to, to make to, to make that payment. And hopefully at the end of 10 years, your $12 million isn't still worth just $12 million. Well, that point. And that, I think you're, that's, that's the, you know, that's the, I think that's the concern is that, you know, you know, a, a, a capital, a free a tax free on, on, on a $0 or, or a loss is, isn't a great deal. So if you put, put your 12 million and you've lost it all, or now it goes down to 10, you're not getting any of the benefits from, from the tax law. So again, that's why you, you have to look at the investment. Now, just to be clear, and this is one of the criticisms, which, which is, is not good for the overall, uh, really the, the, the spirit of the law, but maybe for real estate investors, it's good, is there are a lot of areas that are targeted as opportunity zones that may not really be as dilapidated as the Detroit, Detroits of the world. So there's specifically, I've read, there's a lot of uh, neighborhoods or zones in, in Oakland, California, for example, which, which aren't that bad. So it's maybe they don't really need the money as much, but it's, it's categorized an opportunity zone. And probably if you look at Manhattan, that's probably another area that you may want to take a look at to see, you know, so they're, they're, all opportunity zones are not created equal. And I think that's one of the reasons, well, there's two reasons I think people are trying to get in front of the, in front of this. Number one is for that. It's just to gobble up those, those, those zones that are, you know, that are better than other zones, make sure they get in first uh, number one, to take advantage of those zones, but also to not overpay. Like I think, like I said, as, as the time goes on, uh, you're going to be overpaying or paying more for the property. The other thing that people need to realize and remember is if you want the full tax benefit of that 15% discount, you've got to get your money in there be before the end of this year, by December 31st of this year, because if, if you go, if you invest next year, you're not going to get to seven years. You're going to get to December 31st, 2026, which is when it triggers and you're not going to make the seven years. So you won't get that benefit of that additional 5%. So if you want the entire 15% discount, you have to get into an opportunity zone fund by the end of this year, which is another reason people are rushing to get this thing set up and people making investments in them. 
Yeah, and I think I think one of the things that anytime you have a situation like this, and I've been I've been cautioning my uh, my group that asked me about it. And again, I don't I just don't right now currently know of of opportunities that I I would invest in personally. Um, but I think especially when you have um, things like this happening that sound like wow, that's a really really good idea. You have to be especially careful for charlatans in situations like this, right? Where at the end of the day, um, you know, you still have to deal with operators. You still have the same elements that you have to deal with. And so, you know, there's a lot of people who are getting involved. And I and I, I know a, a couple of them that I absolutely don't trust uh, who've been talking this up like crazy. But I, right. And I know that the way they're going to make their money is by upfront fees and I, and then they're just gonna you know if it works it works and if it doesn't it doesn't right I mean it, right so you have to be really careful because there's so much hype around this right now. Yeah, you definitely want to make sure, and I think this is true with any investment, but you definitely want to make sure that your sponsor, whoever's putting the deal together, that your interests are aligned with theirs and that they have the same incentive. So clearly somebody who has a lot of fees up front and really doesn't care whether there's uh, you know any profit in the deal and just fees the thing to death. Uh, is not as good as if somebody, I don't want to, I'm not endorsing this, but some people don't take any fees up front at all, which I don't think is a good idea either. It's the other extreme, but they basically don't get paid until the back end. And only if you make money, I make money, which is sort of the other extreme. But uh, this is probably more uh, more pronounced in the opportunity zones because you're right. If these things go south, uh, these promoters will will end up making money anyway because they're taking it uh, on, on upfront fees and maybe some asset management fees during the first few years. And then by the time the thing goes south, you know, they've, they've already made some money. Yeah, in other words, the same rules apply. You still got to look at yeah, the people. Sure. You still have to for look sure. at the people first and foremost. Yeah. So I know you've got a um, you've been working on a report um, about this for people who are interested. How can they get their hands on that? Yeah, I put together a report called uh, the Anti Lawyer's Guide uh, to Opportunity Zones: The Good, the Bad, the Ugly. And if you want a copy of it, just uh, feel free to email me at team t a m team at premierlawgroup.net. Again, team at premierlawgroup.net. Uh, just put uh, you know wealth uh, wealth formula on the ray line, and uh, I'll send you a copy of it uh, as soon as it's done. Yeah, and uh, we'll put that in the show notes too. Uh, that that email, or if you want to, uh, just shoot me an email. If you can't remember, you can't spell Premier or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. You can shoot me an email, and I'll happily uh, forward it to my friend Mauricio here because uh, you've got all sorts of fancy blockers on your email, so you're not always <laughs> not on that one. Not on that one. <laughs> So anyway, Mauricio, it was uh, great to have you back. Uh, appreciate it. Um, t- tell us also about uh, Premier Law Group and, and what kind of services you're you're doing there. Yeah, we are, as I like to say, the premier syndication attorneys and 100% of our practice is, is syndication. So that's all I do. I, I, I work on with real estate investors. I, I think all of my 100% of my clients are real estate investors and 99% of my deals are real estate related. So if you're out there looking to raise capital, happy to talk to you. Um, you can look me up on, on YouTube and Facebook. I do a lot of videos. I like to add value. That's kind of how I, uh, I, I kind of contribute. So if you are looking for some additional information, you can either check out the website at premierlawgroup.net or find me on Facebook or YouTube and you'll, you'll see some of, uh, some of my videos that I've been putting together that I actually been pretty well received. I just started doing them about a month ago and uh, I'm getting some good traction with them. So I'd love to share them with you. It's awesome, man. Well, again, thanks, uh, thanks, bunch for being on the show, and uh, we will be right back. Welcome back to the show, everyone. So, what do you think? What do you think about opportunity zones? 
I mean, here's what I'm thinking. Here's my verdict, I guess, at least after this interview. And I, it was, I have to admit that, you know, there are things in this interview that made me think that uh, it's even less appealing than I necessarily thought it was. But let's just take an example, right? So, you know, this is where, you know, there's a big, uh, the reason that this is a potentially dangerous pitfall is that you've got a bunch of people throwing together funds really quickly because they're trying to attract investors with significant capital gains. So say, for example, you just sold a business, okay? And this is pretty common in this uh, investor club of ours. We've got people selling businesses for millions of dollars, okay? So say you just sold your, build, your business for, or practice for eight, $10 million. Now, personally, the last thing I'd do is put all this money into opportunity zones, uh, these funds. Why? Well, from my perspective, you're only getting, I mean, first of all, let's talk about the tax part of this, right? Because I, I actually thought it was better than it, it appears to be. You're only really getting, you know, this deferral and then a maximum of 15% tax break on your initial gains in the first place. And then next, you, you have to have liquidity to pay all that tax off by, I think it was 2026. Finally, even though you don't have to pay taxes on the gains of the fund after a decade, I mean, you still have to pay the initial taxes on your gain, um, less 15% if you hold for a certain period of time. But Okay, so the fund itself, you invest in that, you don't have to pay taxes on that gain. Well, you've invested all your money in presumably low-income areas, areas that aren't thriving very well, and you've tied it up for over a decade. I mean, that just sounds really, really dangerous to me. I got to tell you. I got to tell you. And, it, uh, and I'm not saying I'd never do it. I mean, listen, at the end of the day, it really just depends on the opportunity. It depends on the operators. Remember the operators. And for me, it's about the people. I invest in people. I don't invest necessarily specifically in deals. You know, and, and going back to this whole thing about the decade, it's not even clear to me how you get your money back over a decade's time. I mean, a lot of these funds continue to go after 10 years. So what, you know, I mean, at that point, what do you do? You sell your shares and they may not be worth much of anything. And so you locked up your funds for, uh, you know, 10 years and hopefully you're getting back at least what you put in. I mean, that just sounds like a prospect that for me has way too much hype around it when you really dig into the weeds. Um, and I got to say, in my opinion, uh, that right now, at least using bonus depreciation might actually be more valuable given the fact that applies to all depreciable assets. Um, you know, it's not, it could be an A-class asset and it still applies and there's no significant, you know, there's no hold time minimum. You know, and especially if you or your spouse is a real estate professional, has that designation. If you don't know what I'm talking about, look it up right now. It's called a real estate professional. And if that, if you or your spouse are a real estate professional, that in combination with the power of bonus depreciation is an amazing. Basically what you're doing is you've got passive investments, or I'm sorry, passive losses of real estate that then become activated and you can use to write off income of all sources. So it is extraordinary, extraordinarily powerful. And I still think 
you know, it's the best deal in the world if you happen to be in a position where you're a real estate professional. Anyway, um, bottom line is, I know a lot of your tax advisors are talking about this stuff. I know I'm hearing a lot of urging of, of individuals, even within the group, to, to seek out these opportunity funds. I'm just saying that they aren't always the best judges of investments. Even with these people who are really, really good with taxes, I don't always think that they may be the person to listen to when it comes to you know choosing operators. And that's just my opinion. I'm not saying I'm, I know everything, but I'll tell you that it's, uh, I've, seen, I've seen some bad choices in that, in that world. Anyway, um, that's where I urge you to start again. That's where I urge you to start. Don't start with the tax. Start with the team, the operator. Know, like, and trust. It's all about the team, the operator, and the business plan. It's not just about the tax. Of course, the tax plays a significant role when we get to that point. But if you find, you know, like, listen, if, if Ken McElroy or, you know, Western Wealth Capital, these guys are doing a fund uh, in an in a opportunity zone, I'd be all over it. Why? Because I'm already, you know, these are people I already like and trust and invest with as it is, and, and they know what they're doing. So I think those would be things I would consider. Anyway, um, we can talk about this more. Um, you can certainly, um, you know, email me your thoughts at bucketwealthformula.com. Also, uh, just as a reminder, you know, the Wealth Formula Network is continuing to grow. And if you like these conversations and you want to get down into the weeds with others who are, you know, geeking out on this stuff like you, Go to wealthformularoadmap.com. There's a course that's also, um, you know, makes, uh, sort of gives you the background and everything. And then you've got the Facebook group, bi-weekly mastermind calls and all sorts of other information. Anyway, that's it for me this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Safe You with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.